Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Razor Branding Podcast. And have I got a treat for you. If there was ever a time that you would wish this podcast in imparted all of your senses and we could smell and taste, this would be the one that you would want because I have with me the founder and president of Ruby Slipper Cafe. Jennifer is going to talk all about her restaurants in New Orleans. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am so excited to have you here. And and I'll be honest, and I was honest in the uh, the pre-show, I have not had the opportunity to eat there. So I got to meet you through the Women's President Organization. And so I'm glad that we're getting to talk now that led me down this path of doing this research. And now I can't figure out how you haven't been in my life all this time. Holy cow. I know. It's so exciting. And I uh, I know that you've been kind of in lockdown in your house in Lafayette for a while now. Yes, right? so yes, we have. When you escape, you're going to have to go visit. Uh, we have a Baton Rouge location and lots of locations in New Orleans. So. And Florida. Like, I am just amazed. So I need to know all of it. When did you start? How did you start? How have you expanded? And when are you coming to Lafayette? Those are my questions in no certain order. Okay. Well, always good to begin at the beginning. Um, so Ruby Slipper Cafe uh, got its start back in May of 2008. So we're about to have our 13 year anniversary, which is really mind blowing. Um, important part of our story is that uh, I'm a chemical engineer and my husband, Eric, is an electrical engineer. So there is absolutely no logical thread that would take us to um, the career path that we are now on with uh, restaurants and breakfast and brunch. Um, but what we uh, did find was that in post-Katrina New Orleans, um, we were working really diligently to help rebuild our neighborhood, rebuild our own house, rebuild our neighborhood. And we um, felt that there was a need for a little neighborhood cafe. Uh, basically, you know, one of those things that we wanted to go have a place in the neighborhood where we could get a good cup of coffee and delicious breakfast and see our friends and neighbors and you know, that kind of place you envision in your mind. Um, and, you know, in Katri post Katrina, New Orleans, there wasn't necessarily somebody else who was going to go do that for you. So um, we did a lot of research and we uh, found that, you know, hey, we could we could probably do this. If we hire really smart people who actually know something about restaurants. Um, so we took, you know, probably one of the biggest risks and biggest uh, leaps of faith that we ever did in our lives. And we opened this small uh, corner restaurant. The first location had 50 seats, um, breakfast brunch focused, and um, it really took off. It was a hit. Uh, unexpectedly, it was a hit. <laughs> unexpectedly to us. Um, so, you know, from that start in really just wanting to like build community and rebuild the neighborhood, um, we, we just kind of always listened to our loyal fans and guests who would share with us, you know, like, hey, we, you really need another location. So took us about two and a half years and we opened our second location in New Orleans. Um, that's the one that most people from outside of New Orleans are familiar with. It's at 200 Magazine Street, like a block off canal in the Central Business District, really close to the French Quarter, close to all the hotels. Um, and that is the one that is 
like ridiculously busy. So when people um, have heard of us as we, you know, kind of go around the country and they're like, oh, I've been to that one where there's like people standing in the street. Well, you know, in COVID now there's people standing all over the place as long as they're six feet away from any other people who are standing waiting for brunch. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the story kind of continues from there that uh, that one really took off. And then we opened a third location a couple of years later in 2012 um, in the Faubourg Marigny, which is the neighborhood right behind the French Quarter, a very historic neighborhood. And at that point, you know, as I said at the beginning, I'm a chemical engineer by background in education. Um, I had had three kids and now we had three restaurants. So my oldest son was two when we opened the first restaurant. My second son was four months old when we opened the second restaurant. And my daughter was a year old when we opened the third restaurant. So I had, you know, three kids basically age five and under, and I still essentially had a full-time career um, in the oil and gas industry, which is where I spent my 16, you know, 16 to 18 years of my engineering life. Um, and so I told my husband, like, no, no more restaurants. That's enough. Um, but uh, he, he's notorious. He's has like the best karma around real estate and spaces. And he just finds these like deals you can't pass up. So um, he called me one day at work and was like, I found this place on Canal Street. Like, I really think you need to come look at it. And I was like, which part of no more restaurants did you not understand? <laughs> so um, we uh, went and looked at it and that location at 1005 canal which was our fourth location in new orleans um has kind of become our flagship because it's the one it's the most visible location it's in the old mccrory's if you're you know yes. here in, in the louisiana new orleans in particular it was the mccrory's five and dime um it was actually uh historically that was the location of the civil rights lunch counter sit-ins and aretha castle haley worked at mccrory's and she was one of the um people who had that first sit-in so it's actually a really special building and it's really important to the history of new orleans and the history of uh, the civil rights movement in new orleans in particular and so um that was our fourth location at that point you know we kind of decided well you know hey is this a thing like can this be something is it just people in new orleans who want to drink mimosas at seven or people who are vacationing here you know who want to have mimosas at seven in the morning and eat breakfast and brunch all day long? Um, or could this concept, you know, work somewhere else? And so that was, uh, it was 20, mid 2015 is when we expanded outside of New Orleans with our first location. And that was in Pensacola, Florida. You mentioned Florida. Um, it was very scientific. We uh, drew a three hour radius circle on a map and decided, you know, it was basically we could go to Lafayette or we could go to Pensacola. Sorry, Lafayette. There's a lot of things we love about Lafayette, but I'm a beach person. And so the idea of like going to the beach was really attractive to me. Um, so yeah, we went to Pensacola. Uh, that location really took off. So we went to Orange Beach, Alabama the next year. And then we came back and built another location here in New Orleans, uptown. I uh, went to Baton Rouge that same year, moved our headquarters. And then, um, you know, kind of from there continued expanding. So now uh, we have 18 restaurants under two sister brands, Ruby Slipper Cafe and Ruby Sunshine. And the Ruby Sunshine brand is the brand that we opened in Tennessee and North Carolina and Northern Alabama. So we're in Nashville, Franklin, which is a really cool historic city right outside Nashville, um, Chattanooga, Knoxville, Gatlinburg, 
we're in Charlotte and we're in Birmingham. So um, yeah, we've been busy over the past few years. I have so many questions and I'll start with, I don't think Franklin is three hours from New Orleans. So at what point did you abandon that three hour circle? Yeah, it was, yeah, it, was um, it was, it was then when we decided, you know, we, we needed to go further away. You know, we had kind of done our three hour radius. Um, that was, and I'll tell you, you know, my thinking, this is like kind of mom thinking, where could I go? How far could I drive and spend enough time to have an impact and still drive home and not be away from home that night? <laughs> so three hours was what I came up with. So I was like, I can go three hours. I can be there for six hours and drive three more hours home. Um, yeah. So we realized, you know, that we needed to expand further. There's so many great cities in the Southeast. We wanted to stay in the South, of course. Um, and we, you know, just started looking and, you know, felt like Tennessee was a, um, a great place to go next. So that is awesome. Anywhere. So if you can't do a three hour drive, if you can do a one leg flight, you're okay. And Southwest is a, you know, great to fly to Nashville. So you just followed the Southwest pattern now as you expand (laughs) the one stop. Yeah. Exactly. So what was the catalyst between changing the name for the new locations instead of keeping them all consistent with Ruby Slipper? So, um, well, there's a couple of reasons. One being that, you know, kind of Ruby Slipper is the roots. It's New Orleans. It's really specific to the story of the birth of the brand. And the second is making sure that we had a trademark that we could really grow, eventually grow nationally with. And so, you know, um, since you're in, you know, the marketing and branding world, you'll be familiar with uh, when brands go through any type of, you know, kind of name or logo change, et cetera. Um, So we went through this painful naming process um, where, you know, there was everything was on the table, but there was also like ruby and slipper like what is the critical thing here what are, like what what is the thing and for me the word i just love the word ruby i don't feel like you can say ruby without smiling and then when we you know really started looking at all the other words that could go with ruby and our beautiful logo with the red high-heeled shoe with the egg um the sunny side of egg in place of a buckle on the shoe and the beautiful sunburst behind it and breakfast brunch and daytime I love sunshine. It's uh, probably one of the things that makes me happiest. So I felt like Ruby Sunshine was just words you can't say without smiling. That's awesome. So are you connected um, other than that visually? Do you, I mean, do you share the same recipes? Do you have the same executive chef? Okay. They're identical. You know, we run them out of our home office here in New Orleans um, with everything just basically dual branded right now. Gotcha. Do you have thoughts about having the connection completely to make your life a little bit easier? Uh, Definitely those conversations come up and like we have some kind of unbranded stuff. So where, you know, we have like a clean logo that doesn't have the words on it and it just has our tagline brunch born in new Orleans. And so, you know, we use that on like our to go cups, um, coffee cups, uh, you know, things where it's like, let's just print one set and not have to have a version that goes to slipper and a version that goes to sunshine. Right. Right. Because then it's like trying to balance your kids. It gets challenging. Yeah. I totally feel that. So at what point, either by year or by number of locations, did you feel like you could quit your real job and do this (laughs) full time? So I never wanted to quit my fault, my real job. 
Um, I loved my real job. I actually left in 2015. It was kind of, um, what do you say, serendipity. Um, it was a combination of things, one of which was we had a pretty significant issue with a senior manager in the company and um, involved a theft of money and a pretty significant amount of cash. And it, as we kind of went into that investigation, it, it led me to see that there were some changes that had taken place in the culture that had you know been seven years since we opened and it was you just see you know culture is about the people who lead the organization right and so you can put practices and ideas and traits and all these things in place but if you don't live those things every day the culture is what it becomes right so i saw that the culture had changed and to me um i knew i couldn't hire somebody to fix that you can't you can't bring somebody in and say like hey make my culture better um, <laughs> It was, you know, what some of the these senior leaders had done over time, just because that's who they were, and you know, it, it became what it became. But I knew that the only person who could make the changes was really me and my husband, being more active in the business. Um, at that same moment in time, uh, in you know, kind of early to mid twenty fifteen, is when. You know, oil had been, you know, well over a hundred dollars a barrel and it completely tanked. Uh, there's a, you know, a big thing going on with OPEC and basically everybody opened their valves up and now oil was worth nothing. Um, yes. And I live so, in Lafayette. We remember those days. So, you know, major, I worked for Shell oil company. So major oil companies like Shell were in a, you know, in a free fall and really had to make some tough, but significant cuts. So I was actually in a position to volunteer for a package and to essentially take my retirement. Um, and so what, you know, kind of those two things just happened at the same moment where you think like, okay, the universe has given me a sign and it's right here and I really need to pay attention to it. And so I um, was very grateful that I was able to leave a job that I absolutely loved and people that I really loved but to leave in a really positive way and, you know, I got all my benefits and pay and stock options, all the things that I at some point would have had to walk away from if I needed to come run the business. Um, instead, I got all those things. So it was really um, a wonderful safety net for us. And so um, I left in, you know, kind of mid 2015. And so I've been at the helm of the company for, you know, going on six years now. Um, and it's, uh, I spent my first, you know, solid year, maybe even year and a half, kind of having a pity party for myself that I had to leave my career that I had worked my whole life and all the things that I thought, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And this is where I'm going to go. Um, it took me, it took a lot of time it was really, you know, I, I can't say that there was necessarily like a moment when a light bulb went on, but there was definitely an evolution that happened in that time period where I realized like, you know, the restaurant business is really fun and people in hospitality, they're really a lot of fun <laughs> and I have a really cool job and I get to do really cool stuff and I really don't know why I'm having a pity party about this when my poor friends in oil and gas are like getting cut left and right and super stressed out and I'm over here having a party, drinking mimosas and taste testing champagne and cocktails. And what's the next pancake or the stuffed French toast or what kind of Benedict? Um, I really 
you know, took me, I kind of had to, you know, punch myself in the face a little bit and be like, you need to get, get out of your feelings and realize like how good you have it right now. And like, what a great team you have. And, and, you know, I was able to restore that culture and have the right people um, help me do that and really build an excellent team. Um, and, you know, I think where we are today, you know, we're kind of light years away from where we were in 2015. Yeah, because it took you, it sounds like eight years to open the first three or four. And then in the last seven years, you've opened another 12, right? Yeah, or 14. We opened by 2015, when I came um, at the seven year mark, we had number five. Okay. So we had five open. And so since that, um, in the last five and a half years, going on six years, we've opened, um, yeah, 13. And we have, Hopefully four we're going to open this year in 21. Wow. We um, have two of those pretty well, you know, on the books um, and two more kind of white space. We'll see what happens. Do you get to a point in your growth where you think this is good? I, I have one in every town and every state. I mean, what's the goal? What are you heading towards? Um, so the goal is going to be continued growth. Um, not necessarily with me uh, sitting here in this seat as the CEO, I'll, I'll um, always get to be the founder. And that's the, um, you know, kind of the amazing part about starting a business and growing a business is that um, there's lots of other people out there who uh, want to take highly successful growth oriented businesses, you know, to the next level. So um, that's definitely the goal for us. In the, awesome. in the three to five year range, probably. Are you basically just looking at other towns where you want a vacation and you're picking your locations accordingly? <laughs> That's how I am. I'm completely selfish. I'm like, where do I want to go? Um, yeah, I'm like, you know, is this a place I'd want to hang out? And, you know, is there a cool coffee shop here? And, you know, Ski or surf. Right, yeah. So, um, you know, definitely really want, you know, Charlotte's been a great, uh, I should tell you a little bit about 2020 with restaurant openings, but we I was opened, getting there. <laughs> we opened two restaurants in the pandemic that had already been under construction underway. We were supposed to open in um, Charlotte, North Carolina in April. That one ended up opening in July and we were supposed to open in uh, Nashville in the Hillsboro village neighborhood of Nashville um, in May and that opened in June. So, I mean, we're so far along with construction. We're like, if we can hire people, we should just move forward because you're sitting on real estate and you have all these costs sunk in and you have all this rent and everything else. Um, and so, you know, both Charlotte and Nashville have been really great locations for us so far. And we, um, you know, definitely are looking to expand in both of those cities. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity and, you know, they're just very large. They're much larger than New Orleans, um, large cities where there's certainly a lot of opportunity. And then there's um, lots of other fun places. You know, the South is a great place to live and uh, work and play. So. Right. so as you've navigated the pandemic with multiple locations in multiple cities in multiple states, how challenging it has it been to navigate the various rules and regulations of these different communities as a corporate entity? 
So um, interestingly, this is another one of those times when my um, engineering background and experience uh, has come to help me in my restaurant needs. Um, so, you know, kind of what I actually did as a chemical engineer working for Shell, my kind of area of specialty was health, safety and environmental. And so I, um, you know, kind of developed standards, implemented standards, and also audited on a global basis um, for years, uh, you know, at different things. So um, having different rules and regulations uh, that had to be followed in multiple locations didn't phase me at all. Um, and I have this just really amazing team. Um, and, you know, you, one of the things about amazing teams is know who's good at what. And so, you know, there's uh, a member on my ops support team who, I was really good at, you know, kind of keeping track of all that. And so every time we would just, we, in the very beginning, of course, as these rules started coming out, I guess probably in April, early April, when they were going to actually reopen dining rooms, um, you know, we just went, went online to every market and we just created a, essentially a spreadsheet, but like a database that was by category of like, what is the spacing requirements? What is the seating requirements? What can you do indoors versus outdoors? What do you have to do for cleaning? What do you have to do for mask wearing? What, you know, so we just made all those, what we ultimately decided to do, which I think is probably, you know, kind of save your sanity uh, behavior was in the early days, the rules were pretty different in the different markets. Um, New Orleans had you know, some of the most stringent rules. Um, and we know New Orleans had a huge um, COVID spike in the very early days. And so having more significant rules here was the right thing and to be expected at that time. Um, so we basically took the New Orleans rules and said, let's just make everybody do that. Because we saw things that were changing in different markets. And it felt weird to me as I thought about it from an employee standpoint to say, like, if you're an employee that lives in New Orleans, you know, you have to wear a mask at work and, you know, we're going to follow these certain protocols on hand washing and, you know, sanitizing surfaces and things. But if you live in Florida, like, eh, I'm not that worried about you. So don't wear a mask. And, you know, I just felt like, let's just get everybody on board and let's start here. And then if we see that we can back off, you know, we'll back off in those markets where we can change. Um, by the time that those, that next set of changes came around, you know, a couple months later, and we saw kind of all the restaurants around us in some markets eliminating mask usage and things like that. Um, our employees were like, oh no, 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 we're not, we're not taking these masks off. What do you mean the guests aren't gonna wear masks anymore? Um, so we have really changed the culture because we just set the bar and we kept it very consistent that, you know, we I don't think anybody knows enough. Let's just protect everybody equally. And and you know, what we saw as a result of that was um exceptionally low COVID transmission in our workplace, which is something I'm really proud of. I think it was all the way through until um, the holiday spikes that we saw around um, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Prior to that point, we had not had a single case of transmission where somebody at the workplace tested positive and anyone else ever tested positive. Um, and so that, you know, that's, I think, really significant. And, and hopefully some of the things that we did in the workplace also translated to people's like personal behaviors that helped keep them safe. Um, long term. You know, we have had 
luckily very few, but we've had a few employees who had pretty severe cases of COVID, you know, were hospitalized. Um, and that's really, you know, I, I think if you've, if you've been in that position where you've seen it up close, somebody, you know, in your family, a friend, a neighbor, um, you realize just how devastating it can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I hope all of your employees that were affected and, and have been sick have recovered and continued to stay healthy. Um, you know, it's it's a tough time right now. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine, and based on some of the, the talk you've had about how you've grown and expand, that the tourists heavily fuel your visitation. Um, we haven't had a lot of that. So how do you, especially in your more tourist-based areas, how do you adapt to such a down count from your customers? Yeah, so um, that's obviously it's been the biggest impact um, is really our New Orleans locations um, that were heavily tourism based. So the ones that are downtown. So, um, you know, we have uh, I didn't mention, but the location on Canal Street, which was that fourth location that we opened here in New Orleans that location is adjacent to the Hard Rock Hotel. So when the Hard Rock Hotel collapsed in oh October my God. 2019, on that lovely Saturday in October of 2019, um, our restaurant was impacted and was closed for seven weeks um, while they stabilized everything. And then we reopened. Um, and then we closed, of course, for COVID in March. And at just as restaurants in New Orleans were reopening, um, is when we got notified that they were going to begin the demolition of the Hard Rock Hotel and our locations within what they call the red zone. So it's the you know kind of demolition danger zone. So that um, that restaurant location has been closed for I don't know now I guess March to February almost twelve months uh, eleven months plus it was closed for you know seven weeks of the last three months of twenty nineteen. Um, So that's been really difficult. Um, But the other locations, you know, we have the one at 200 Magazine and we have one on Decatur Street, um, 204 Decatur. It's across from uh, the House of Blues is kind of how people would reference it from a a landmark standpoint. Um, Those two locations, which are open, definitely are the most significantly down as a percentage of like 2019 sales, which is what, you know, what we're still comparing against is 2019. Um, So that's been really difficult because typically those have been some of our, you know, highest volume, highest cash flow locations uh, in the entire group. So luckily, you know, our locations in like Pensacola and Orange Beach um, that's where a lot of tourists did go, right? People went to the beach, they went to the coast, they went to their timeshares and their um, VRBOs and um, condos and all that good stuff. So those locations were, you know, held really strong. And then, you know, our neighborhood locations and our other kind of city-based locations did okay and continue to do okay. Um, you know, we don't anticipate those downtown locations coming back until at least this fall, you know, once we have enough vaccines out there and we start to see that return of tourism in New Orleans. So when I think about the expense that we incur as a business, whether we're open or closed, it's significant. Yes. Um, And not to get into your business, but 
how does one survive having a location not open for 12 of the last 15 months? Um, so really it's all about cash flow at this point, right? And like lowering those fixed costs as much as possible. So luckily for us, um, our landlord at Canal is um, an exemplary human <laughs> who uh, has been a, like a pleasure to work with for the whole time we've been there. But, um, you know, go through a crisis like this and you get to really know um, how people really are. And so, you know, he's worked with us um, through the canal closure. Uh, you know, some of our other landlords have been in a position to, you know, help us with lowered or deferred rents. Um, and then it's really about like all those other things that that essentially were fixed costs in the previous world. Like, hey, can do we still need this? Can we get out of this contract? Can we defer this? Um, of course, with people, we didn't have the people that were associated with those restaurants, you know, like with Canal, for example, we were able to just move them into other parts of our business. Right. Um, but, you know, when you look at like, um, there's some costs you just can't eliminate because you're in a multi-year contract on a piece of right. equipment or something, you know, and you're just going to pay on pay that. So you're really relying on the other locations um, to fill that gap. And of course, they're all very low in profitability as well, right? <laughs> because of, how low sales are. So 2020, definitely not a year anybody wants to repeat. I, I don't think whether that's on a personal level or a business level, unless you're in the fast food business. I think, you know, fast food and, and there's a few others uh, out there that did really well. Right. Well, yeah. and, and I think about, you know, oftentimes when we have oil drop off, or stock market or housing, all of those different challenges, they're either very industry-based yep. or natural storms, which are very geographically based. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that we have encountered as business people in our lifetimes, this across the board, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic profile is, it doesn't matter where you live geographically, you're effed, <laughs> like you're yeah. just affected. Yeah, I was just having this uh, conversation. Um, I was on a doing a Q and A last night, and the qu the question somebody had asked was like, "What was the you know kind of what were the economic um, difficulties in New Orleans following Katrina, and like kind of economic conditions, and like how do you comp compare those to COVID?" And it's like, well, as you said, you know, a storm as devastating it is, as it is and, you know, the destruction levels that we've seen in 2020, the hurricanes of 2020 are like, oh, my God, as if we needed one more thing. Right. Um, they're concentrated, though, in, geographically. And you, you have this typically like in Katrina, all these other people around the country and around the world had this outpouring of love and support and, you know, people who wanted to come spend their tourist dollars here or came here to volunteer and help rebuild or moved here to help rebuild. So, you know, there was this positive influx that has happened over so many years now. Um, whereas here we're all in the same boat of devastation and nobody, you know, has, there's no assurance of when we're going to get out of it. And so everybody, you know, it's a little bit, more of like every person for themselves, which is, uh, you know, not as fun of a place to be as that feeling of like banding together as a community. Right. Well, and I think you just hit on both things. One, because it wasn't localized, there was no outside to come in. There's no and outside. two, there's no end. You know, right. Katrina, once the storm ended, now we rebuild. We can't start to rebuild because it's not ended. 
Right. Yeah. And then it goes back to like this idea that cash is king right now as a business owner um, or as an individual. Right. So, you know, we're, you're having to make decisions on a personal level or on a business level because we don't know what the duration is and you're, you know, it's a little bit of voodoo. You're like, let me get my, what's my best guess of how long I need to behave in this exceptionally, you know, kind of lean and frugal way and how long, you know, can people tolerate that? Cause there's a level of um, stress and impact on people's emotional health that, there's, you know, kind of what's happening in their personal lives related to COVID. And then there's also just the stress of, you know, we are operating restaurants with less people. Our home office is, you know, still probably maybe at about two thirds of what we were before, um, you know, but there's not really less work to do. And so people are, you know, finding ways to kind of do more with less, but you can only ask that of people for so long. There has to be an end in sight. Right. Absolutely. Because if we know it's done by this date, well, everybody's like, okay, right. I can work towards that. Yeah. But it's the never ending that I think has that additional toll. Um, we've had a, uh, a licensed clinical social worker therapist uh, on twice in the past year. Uh, once right when it started, because we were talking about the effect this is going to have on people. And then she came yeah. back. She was our first repeat guest a couple of months ago and talking about now it's been almost a year. How has it affected people? Yeah. And and what we keep talking about is, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And yeah. so how it's affected each one of us. Different. Yes, but differently. Different. Yeah. yeah. It's just, man, it's tough. It is tough. So I think about restaurants specifically. Y'all have come through, uh, especially New Orleans-based restaurants, right? So y'all have come through um, COVID. You you found ways to adapt. Um, storms, bam, bam, bam. You found ways to adapt. And now there's no Mardi Gras. How much is that going to impact y'all this weekend? Um, I mean, for us, it's definitely a significant financial impact, you know, kind of all of February where we would have had you know, kind of the two big weekends and all, you know, all the stuff that leads up and in between and all that. Um, I guess uh, it's more of the emotional impact that it's having, you know, everybody, you know, it's Mardi Gras a spirit and it's, you know, it's a culture and it's an idea and it's, you know, a way that you feel and a way that you celebrate. Um, parades and things like that are ways that you kind of mark those celebrations. And they're the reasons that you would get together with your friends on the parade route. And you just have all these traditions and like, you know, it's like the one time a year I just eat the most fried chicken possible. <laughs> it's like nothing better than fried chicken and king cake on a, a parade route. Um, and so, you know, I think people have been thoughtful about, you know, how do you, um, still have some amount of celebration. I, I know, I'm sure you and your listeners have heard about these um, house floats that have sprung. Draw. It's amazing. I, I'm assuming they have them in uh, Lafayette too now because they're all over the country from what I can hear is like people, uh, New Orleans transplants who got into it as well. But that's been fun. Like I've been, I've done three neighborhoods so far where I'm just like, go take a walk, look at the map, see the house floats uh, starting last weekend. Um, I think the weather is not looking so great for this coming weekend. It's actually, I usually ride in crew of muses, which would have been tonight. Um, it's pouring down rain right now, which is the, it's actually the silver lining for me of like, I probably wasn't going to ride anyway. 
um, like last weekend we had like cold, wet weather on Saturday. And but my first thought was like, oh, this would have really sucked on the parade route anyway. You know, like let me find what's gonna make me feel better about it. Of course, Sunday was beautiful. Um, you know, we did a little uh kid walking parade with, you know, three or four families in my neighborhood and social distanced and, you know, had the kids decorate um wagons and you know one of the dads rode a bike with a uh you know speaker on it and we just did like a little around the block thing and everybody costumed and then we went there was like a little park in my neighborhood and you know kind of just went and had this little social distance little families got together um and it was fun you know i was like wow i didn't think that that was going to be as meaningful to me as it ended up being so you know it's really hard i think uh the restrictions that were put in place um last week that start today um are pretty devastating and um you know i just don't know how much restaurants and restaurant workers and hospitality workers can take or how much more they can take um so it's really just really difficult to and constantly have like changing rules and you know what's going to happen um the things you plan for you know it's even the simple things like uh you know lots of people invested in commemorative you know these mardi gras cups right everybody has mardi gras cups like we had just had all these mardi gras cups printed for all of our to-go drinks for all of our markets and you're like now what I just, now I spent money on this. Right. And it's like, I just said, cash is king. So you spent money on something and now you're like, I, what am I going to do with them? Um, cause we're not allowed to sell to go drinks for the next five days. Um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely financially devastating and it's also, um, you know, just emotionally it's, it's one more thing that takes a toll. And for me, it um it feels a little different than the like the holiday holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. To me, I was like, oh, it's kind of nice to not have to do all that stuff with a big group of people. <laughs> Just like have a quiet holiday. But don't um, come for Mardi Gras. Like, right, you can right. have Thanksgiving and Christmas, but <laughs> yeah. don't take Mardi Gras from yeah, us. Exactly. I'm like, but don't take Mardi Gras. So um, so I wondered when I first saw your logo, if there wasn't a hint of muses inspiration. So then when you just explained that you're in the crew of muses, I wondered yeah. if for people who aren't familiar with New Orleans crews and throws, you could make that connection for them. Yes. So um, a crew, K-R-E-W-E, is what you call the organization that um, parades. And so there's, you know, rules in New Orleans and other cities in Louisiana that say, you know, there's this many crews that can exist and there's routes, uh, you know, kind of street closures. Those are the routes where you take your parades. So Muses was the first all women's nighttime parade in New Orleans. So um, like many things, heavily male or all male uh, for a long, long time. A uh, couple of crews that uh, Iris, I think, was the one that first female crew that, you know, kind of broke that pattern. And then Muses started in 2001 and uh, was the first nighttime parading organization uh, entirely comprised of women. And the red high heel shoe was the first year's signature grow and bead. And so, you know, different, uh, you always have themes and you have, uh, you know, things that are signature in the case of muses, it's shoes. Uh, the muses are the nine muses from Greek mythology. And there's 
um, a set of streets in New Orleans in the Lower Garden District that are named after the muses. And so um, each year they honor a different muse and that'll kind of influence the theme and who the honorary ca captain is, the, you know, kind of honorary muse. And so, um, and I, I can, I don't have a great one in here, but I'll grab an example real quick. We are known for decorating and throwing glittered shoes. So this is one, um, you will recognize it as a Wizard of Oz themed red ruby slipper. And if you know the movie, you know that these black and white stockings were worn by the Wicked Witch of the West before she died and gave these beautiful ruby slippers to Dorothy. So this was a gift um, made by one of um, my fellow muses. Uh, we host, we typically would host a brunch today for about three or four floats. And one of those um, people made me that beautiful shoe. Uh, and so I have treasured it. Um, so I, I want to stop at that moment because what you just showed us is this gorgeously crafted, decorated, themed shoe made human people, women who have full-time <laughs> jobs and raise kids and have lives spend year <laughs> making. Yes. I mean, how many shoes do you make for one parade? Um, I think there's a limit that you're only supposed to make. It's like 30 or 35 is the max because they do want them to be special. Right. And, but there's, I don't know, 700 or 800 riding members. So do the math on that is a lot of shoes. But you're talking about a special collectible and every parade has their own kind of special throw. Right. And so y'all yeah. are handcrafting these gorgeous shoes that you're decorating, you're tying to a theme, and then you're gently tossing or handing them to people right. in the crowd who, I mean, that's gold, y'all. Yes, for sure. Um, so our daughter, who I was going to bring up because she is in her second year at the University of uh, Louisiana at Lafayette studying chemical engineering. Oh, wow. And awesome. so we, we have a whole lot of things to talk about there. Michael wants to know probably from you, what will she do for a living? He's very confused about what her job is going to be. Oh, um, and chemical engineering. Oh, I have so many ideas. Okay, good. Because we need to know all of it. Because he's like... I, I don't, why can't she just come work at the agency? <laughs> like, he's like, I don't understand what she does. Like, she's going to go to a plant. So that's a whole other thing. But her godmother um, has been in Muses, I think, probably since founding. And so every year, Jordan has gone and helped decorate and has been the recipient of a special one. So she has this gorgeous collection of them at her now college apartment. Although I think some may still live at my house. So yes. I'm totally off the subject. Please make Michael feel better. What will Jordan be doing for a living? Yes. Um, so as a chemical engineer, chemical engineers are the people who make almost everything that you have in your house. Like if it's made from a chemical, so that might be every single plastic thing that's on the wall behind you, um, beauty products, um, wine, beer, uh, things you like to drink, you know, chemical engineers make take things that you might have made in chemistry and scale them up to like real world application of like how do you make this so um i did work in a plant that was my my first job i did um consulting i worked for an engineering consulting firm and i so i worked for a number of clients between new orleans and lake charles um that were in you know kind of chemical and refining 
plants. So I spent a lot of time in plants there. Then I went to work for Shell directly. They were one of my clients and I went to work for them directly. And I was the health safety environmental environmental manager in an actual chemical plant in Convent, Louisiana. And then I worked, I went from, you know, kind of that part of Shell to another part of Shell um, where I worked um, auditing plants. So I worked in a corporate environment, but I had to go out and visit locations I worked in aviation fuels, uh, fuels. So I went to like, you know, how fuel gets from a refinery into your car or into your airplane or into your lawnmower um, is through pipelines and then tanks and then trucks or rail cars, et cetera. And so I had a job for one, one point in time, ensuring that that whole um, logistics chain was safe and, you know, the quality you know, doing quality control, quality assurance, and managing safety there. Um, and then I went to uh, upstream, which is the offshore world where we find the oil and we drill for the oil and we hope we get it out of the ground. Um, and so I worked offshore. My last job with Shell, I was actually an operations manager. I oversaw three um, producing platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, now that I am uh, a little older and know more about, you know, what are things chemical engineers can do, I think I would go most definitely into the thing that I am most passionate about, which is wine. I love wine and champagne. And I, I would totally go get a job working for a winery and like making wine. Um, I have a, you know, I have a friend who's a kind of similar chemical background um, who owns a brewery and he's, you know, it's like brewmasters who, who do this. So I think there's a lot of fun things out there. I think makeup would be really fun to do, you know, all the formulations, you know, and you have to remember when you say chemical engineering, you might be working with entirely natural products. It's just how you take these ingredients, think of it like baking, right? So uh, from a cooking standpoint, I like to cook and I like to bake, but I always use a recipe because I'm a chemical engineer, because you'd always use a recipe. And so the recipe is telling you, how do you take these, you know, 10 or 12 things and turn them into this other thing that looks and tastes entirely different than those raw ingredients. And that's kind of the real world example of what chemical engineers do. They take these raw ingredients and turn them into finished products that you might eat or wear or use, et cetera. First of all, that's the best explanation of chemical engineering I've ever heard. Second of all, I am amazed and thrilled by how passionate and animated you got talking about restaurants and talking about chemical engineering. Equally excited about it. Yes, I really did love my job. I can tell. That is awesome. Um, and I think you're going to make her, uh, her dad very happy when he realizes that there is a potential for her future. I mean, you know, it's funny. He he comes up as an artist. And so I'm sure he heard growing up all the time, what are you going to do with that? She's got this real career path as a chemical right. engineer. And now he's like, what yeah. are you going to do with that? So, you know, this is what I, I have done a lot of uh, mentoring of um, high school students uh, and, you know, even college engineering students. And I always, you know, when I was in high school, I excelled in chemistry was like my my absolute favorite subject and I had an amazing chemistry teacher. Um, and so obviously, you know, you kind of look at the sciences and you're like, oh, I want to go into chemistry. And um, my chemistry teacher was actually the one who encouraged me to really look at engineering because it's really kind of the real world application of, you know, this technical science. And what I 
typically will tell, you know, people that I mentor as they're thinking about like, well, I think I want to be a lawyer. I think I want to be a doctor. You know, one of those things that you have to go somewhere else, even I want to get an MBA. If you get a chemical engineering or an engineering undergrad, you can do anything you want with that. You can write a book, you can run a business, you can, you know, do graphic design on a computer, you know, you have to teach yourself some of it, but there's all these things you can do. But if you decided down the road that you really did love chemistry, and in fact, you did want to be a chemical engineer, and instead you got an English degree, you ain't going into chemical engineering, it ain't going to happen, right? So what you learn in engineering is you learn critical thinking and problem solving skills, and how to take a problem, no matter how big it seems, and break it down into its parts, and then solve for it. And so you can take that and apply it anywhere. Look at me, like, I, you know, I, I still to this day, 13 years later, I'm like, I don't really know anything about restaurants. Um, <laughs> but I know a lot about like how to solve problems and how to think and, you know, all of that. So, you know, an engineering degree to me is like worth its weight in gold because the people who I know, um, you know, that I graduated college with, who went into finance, they became doctors, they became lawyers, they, you know, went into business school, they started businesses. They're all highly successful because they were exceptionally organized, very intelligent, great at, you know, identifying problems and solving them, knew how to think things through. Um, so I, I don't think you can lose because you can always change your mind later and do something else, but you could never go back if you didn't have that kind of a technical undergraduate degree. Right. Well, she um, she is loving it so far. I, I think that calculus and organic chemistry have presented some challenges to her along the way. Um, yeah. But otherwise, she's enjoying what she's getting to do. Um, yeah, no, it's good. All right. So we have reached the part which I cannot believe it's been almost an hour, but we're down to the last card, which is oh. our lightning round of questions. Oh, I love these. Yes. OK, good. All right. So favorite place on Earth. Oh my God. Um, favorite place on earth, Costa Rica. I just came back from there and it really cool. That's awesome. Uh, movie you can't turn off. Oh my God. I'm terrible at movies. Um, I'm like a real sucker for the Star Wars series. I could just watch that over and over and over. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, TV show that you like to binge. Oh, Bridgerton. I just watched it. It's so oh my great God. was that. Oh my God. So great. Yep. Yes. Um, Favorite book? Ooh, I'm I'm actively reading like seven books right now, but my favorite book and the book that I really truly believed allowed me to survive 2020 is Glennon Doyle's Untamed. Untamed, absolutely. For me as a human and as a woman and as a mom, um, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, you can't say this one other than Razor Branding. Favorite podcast? Ooh, uh, Brene Brown. I, I love Unlocking Us and Daring to Lead. Yeah, both great. Favorite car? Ooh, I really want a Tesla, that Tesla SEV. Mm. I don't know if I'm just like um, coveting it, but I, that's not what I have. <laughs> I have a Honda Pilot. Um. <laughs> so um, Michael says a day can't go by without me telling people that I own a Tesla SUV. So this is my perfect opportunity Ooh. to slide it into a conversation. I, uh, so when we are in the same town again, yes, I, will, I will hand you the keys anytime. Yes. All yours. Um, favorite festival? Jazz Fest. Excellent New Orleans answer. Yes. Um, your pettiest pet peeve? 
Ooh, pettiest pet peeve. That's a hard one. Um, people in my family loading the dishwasher the wrong way. <laughs> Meaning the way I do it is the right way. The way everyone else does it is the wrong way. Oh, that was clear. That was crystal clear in your answer. Don't you worry. Uh, favorite musician? Ooh, favorite musician. Uh, other thing that got me through 2020 is Taylor Swift. I never even liked Taylor Swift before 2020, and now I freaking love her. I that mean, album is two perfect. albums, Folklore yes. and Evermore, are like, they helped me survive. And did you watch the kind of behind-the-scenes making? On I that did. Oh, my God. It was so good. Life-changing. Yeah. Yeah, I have a whole newfound respect for her, for sure. Yeah. Um, if you do karaoke, what song do you perform? Oh, God, I never karaoke. I think I'm a terrible singer. Um, but I encourage my children to karaoke. And God, my daughter has a song she likes to do that I've had. To, oh, Beyonce, um, all the single ladies. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's, it's got the hand motions. It's yeah, all good. Yeah. Um, favorite sport to watch or play? Um, I have to say soccer because my son plays soccer. I actually don't like watching soccer because I don't understand what's going on. But I love to watch my son. So I'm like... I think the offsides thing is completely made up and I, I have I a newfound appreciation for it though, because of Ted Lasso. Oh, I love Ted Lasso. That was my other binge that I recently right? had. So good. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, so we have a, a client who is up in New Jersey who's watching and he says he is so having a meal at Ruby Slipper Cafe when he comes to tour <laughs> Tulane with his son and visit oh, the fine yeah. folks at oh. Brand Russo. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So you're in, you're on the list now. Um, your favorite meal or food, it can be from your restaurant or someone else's or something you make. My favorite, um, my favorite meal to, to eat at home or to make at home that I would say is like indulgent is lasagna. I freaking love lasagna. I never eat it cause I, pasta is not my friend, but, um, that's like the first thing that came to my head when I, when you said that is like a comfort food that I just love. And I would say um, my favorite thing to eat at Ruby slipper where I get to eat, you know, at least five days a week um, is let's see, there's a lot that compete, but I would say the Costa Rican breakfast is one of my all time favorites. That's what I ate yesterday. And that's um, it's uh, back to where I said favorite place on earth, Costa Rica. Um, black beans and rice with like a homemade warm tomato salsa, um, eggs, how you like them, plantain chips, a little sliced avocado and some chorizo and it's delicious. So that's one of my absolute favorites. I was like being right back there. That's awesome. But I love food. So I could literally like, if you just named 10 restaurants, I'd tell you my favorite things in each of those. And I'm a, a, a creature of habit. So I eat, like, if I go to a restaurant, I like something, I'll go back just to get that thing. That was going to be my question because that's the age old debate. Michelle Ezell and I were having this discussion. Do you know her from Tsunami? Mm -mm, no, okay. I don't. I need to introduce y'all. Yeah. Um, but so we were saying, you know, when you find the thing you love, do you go back and get that thing again? Or do you try a new thing? Oh, I gotta get it. Yeah. I mean, me too. I have very strong food memories. It's definitely one of my, so for example, uh, two years ago, 2019, went to Key West with my husband for his birthday ate at this amazing restaurant called Little Pearl and they had this octopus uh, appetizer that was on special. And it was one of those perfect bites where literally the next night we we're like, do you think we could sit at the bar and just get the octopus? And I took him back to Key West for his birthday in 2020 just to go eat that octopus. <laughs> so 
that's how good it is and how like solid that memory was. There's no shame in my game in telling you that when Michael and I went to Italy with his family, like his parents and siblings, and we ate at this restaurant that we love, uh, Zaza in Florence, mm. uh, twice on the same trip we went there. We went back six months later with our kids and ate there four more times. We're wow. in Italy. We can right. go anywhere. And we've now eaten six times at the same restaurant because that, it's that good. It speaks to the power of food and you know how much food invokes memories and feeling and emotion and all of those things. And that's one of the things that uh, I, you know, when I got past that pity party that I really learned about like being in the restaurant industry is like, you are part of these special moments in people's lives. And they have these memories of something that they ate or drank that in their head, it was the best thing they ever had. And that's, you know, like what other jobs do you get to do when, when that happens? Not too many. Not too many. And that seems to be the exact perfect way to close this out. Um, because that's what I think y'all do. Y'all create these memories and these experiences for people who live in New Orleans, who are visiting, and all the other cities where you are. I mean, kudos to you and the whole team at Ruby Slipper. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Likewise. And I guess I get to see you tonight too at our meeting. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which is awesome. Thank you to everybody who watched and shared and liked and commented. Uh, we appreciate y'all. Um, make sure you come back. We're going to do it again in a couple of weeks and we look forward to seeing y'all then. Thanks.